0: Welcome to episode 25 of the Walk & Talk podcast. I'm Greg Johnson and today is Saturday, May 30th, 2020. As we wake up today and go about our weekend routines, all of us no doubt will tune into the news and hear coverage about riots happening all over the United States in response to um, actually multiple incidents of what are considered to be excess use of force and police brutality. And this brings me to the topic of this episode, which is racism. There are people who have been involved in civil rights since the 1960s who are still alive today and others who maybe are of a new generation but have so thoroughly studied this topic that they would be better positioned to comment on the topic of racism. I feel kind of inadequate to do so. But uh, in addition to feeling uninformed on the issue. Uh, I'm also what people would consider to be someone who is in a position of privilege and really has no business trying to even talk about such a subject that doesn't directly impact me. How can I even know what it's like to be under the oppression of racism? In addition to not having any direct experience with being the recipient of racism and bigotry and not having studied the subject, I'm also not in any particular group or class in terms of religion or race or nationality or uh, gender fluidity or preferences and all of that. I am in this sort of bubble that is protected by our societal norms and dominant in power forces. Um, I can't even speak from a point of authority or experience on the topic of sexism. And yet, often when we hear about the need to bring about change in any of these categories of bigotry or bias or racism, we hear that it's important for people to speak out. It's, it, you'll hear that it's important for white people to speak out about racism and acts of violence toward people of color. And at times like this, when voices are rising up to protest brutality against minority groups. And I think that's true, that people who are in a position to influence change and to at least spread a message of compassion and understanding a bit further into their own circles of influence should speak up. But part of the challenge with that is it's sort of like when they're is an incident of terrorism, for example, and let's say it is tied to someone with a religious identity of being a Muslim, we expect certainly Muslim leaders to speak out against those acts of terrorism. We sort of somehow imagine that even the average Muslim person, a shop owner, or just the person on the street is going to also be speaking up against those acts And when they don't, there tends to be this opinion of people saying, why isn't anybody speaking up against this among the group that seems to be responsible for it? And of course, quite often those acts of terrorism that are associated with Islam are not representative of 90% or 95% or such of people in that group. And so the people in that group probably don't feel that it's their place to say anything Well, I suppose similarly, if white folks are among the, I don't know the percentages, but let's say 90% of people who aren't racist, aren't bigoted, aren't sexist, aren't homophobic, and imagine that most people aren't, when you hear of these incidents happening, either isolated or seemingly to be a pattern that's happening, you can sort of mistakenly, you know, take a step away from that and say, well... That's not my responsibility. It's not characteristic of most white people to be racist and bigoted and sexist and xenophobic, etc. And so people remain silent, even on issues that we might imagine wouldn't be very divisive. You know, politics, religion, abortion, gun control, maybe those are divisive issues. But unless you have a lot of friends that are white nationalists or something... Um, on Facebook or whatever, I mean you, you wouldn 't imagine that posting something on social media protesting the unfair treatment of people based on their skin color, that shouldn 't be divisive, but somehow most of us avoid those discussions because they 're uncomfortable. I think it 's important to define a problem and understand the landscape of the problem and the factors that are involved before we try to talk about how we're going to eradicate the problem. And with racism and with the riots that are happening right now as I'm recording this podcast and I'm walking near a golf club out in nature in an affluent university college community, um, you can sort of hear from my background that even my surroundings are part of that bubble. But if it's valuable or helpful or interesting to anybody to have this perspective, I thought I should offer it. And that is that these cycles of bigotry and hatred and violence, which to me seem to be sort of overlapping and self-perpetuating that have existed for thousands of years, they sort of overlap. They impinge, impact, influence one another. So there are these layers of overlapping, intersecting circles, let's say, so that riots that break out that are protests about police violence, a part of that is a racial protest because when there's violence against people of color, there's going to be part of that protest that's protesting racism. But there will also be protesters there who are protesting police violence in general against anyone. For the most part, probably 90% of the people who are protesting are concerned about inequities and injustice and brutality against people who are being discriminated against. In the Middle East, in Palestine, in Israel, as young people are growing up, they will hear stories. Those stories may be more personal for some people than others, but maybe a family member was injured or killed in a terrorist attack, or in a military strike. And for a young person growing up who's hearing about the other, and being told and taught perhaps even in textbooks in school, that the other, whether it's Palestinians or Israelis if you're being told and indoctrinated really since the time of being a young person that these other people are not to be trusted that they are violent and that they have harmed your family members and then periodically there will be news stories that reinforce that teaching then you'll be brainwashed in a way into believing that what you've been told is true. And one really wonders, how would a person who grows up in that environment ever come about to arrive at a place of trusting someone else that they've been told is not to be trusted? So there's a cultural, institutional bigotry and fear and hatred that is instilled in people from a young age. So I provide that as kind of a context to what we have here in the United States with regard to bigotry toward people of color is that some people are undoubtedly brought up in an environment where those beliefs are taught and where they are demonstrated. And then there will be stories that reinforce those beliefs. Anecdotal stories, statistically irrelevant stories, but impactful stories nonetheless. So I think that's a part of the context and that if you're growing up in an inner city and you're a person of color and you've been told we can't really trust the police and you remember what happened to your uncle or whatever who got beaten up or put in prison or falsely accused of something, maybe eventually was let out of prison because DNA evidence proved that they were innocent or whatever. But there are these stories that reinforce this idea that you just can't trust the government or the police or the justice system. And you look at these raw numbers, the data, and you think from the data, it suggests that there's a system that functions in a racist way and results in millions of people of color being put into prison. So that's on the one side. And then on the other side, you have these people living in fear and in gated communities where their fear and the gates become their sort of protective cage, perhaps. And they're brought up with stories about how you can't trust these people who look different than us you can't trust these people on the other side of town and some of that's based on color but some of it's based on class and this is where it gets kind of murky because while racism is very real there's also this classism where parents will tell their kids don't go play with the joneses because you know they don't drive a mercedes they drive a chevy they the, the dad works in a factory and the mom is a housekeeper or something there's these judgments that are made based on someone's economic status. And those people are, to some degree, looked down upon, although not discriminated against as much as people of color. So there are these pockets of our society where people are indoctrinated into a certain kind of thinking that perpetuates bigotry and racism and disparities. So that's part of the backdrop and the context that's out there. And then we have this... Ongoing situation where people who live in certain neighborhoods are probably not given the same opportunities as they're growing up. Opportunities to get quality education, opportunities to be hired and earn a livable wage. And that does something to a person. And if you're growing up and you're in a household where maybe there are several siblings and a parent is in prison, Let's start with a chess board that is laid out in that way. You know how when you start with checkers, chess, whatever game it might be, you have the pieces laid out in a certain way. So let's say you start this chess game where you're like five moves away from checkmate. You've got a few options you can try to get out of that situation, but basically like most of the game's already over. But that's it. Right now, today, at this moment, there are these households where the mom's working, the dad's in prison, maybe was put into prison for some low-level drug charge, or maybe it was some unsubstantiated charge, whatever, or maybe legitimate reasons. But bottom line, it's not like the totally optimal situation. And maybe you don't have one of those schools that's like a few blocks away where all the kids wear uniforms and there's some wealthy person of color who's decided to make this a mission of giving great opportunities and education to young people of color and make sure they get into colleges and get hired into really good jobs. Maybe that's not happening where you live. So you don't really have opportunities. You don't really have parents or mentors around to help guide you. And you don't feel that sense of protection and sort of a guarantee in life. That's going to affect people pretty much the same way. Like regardless of what your race is, if you're put in that situation, you're going to have a tough time. You're going to try to get street smarts and stay alive and try to keep yourself from being caught up in gang violence or various crimes that are going on, but you're basically in a war zone. And so the outcomes of growing up in a war zone, and I'll just, as a side note, mention that Chicago has been the focus of attention by many people, including Spike Lee, who created a sort of documentary called Shy Rack, which he was comparing the violence in Iraq during the war with the violence in Chicago. And the point was that we have young people growing up being indoctrinated not even necessarily in a formal, conscious way, but by their surroundings. Like, this is a messed-up, unfair situation. You know, we, we don't pick our situation where we're born into, but if you're born into a war zone, into disruption and chaos and unpredictability, it affects a person. And so, in that context, there might possibly be people who are, without having the education and without seeing any opportunities and with having not just your average everyday peer pressure but people who might be threatening to harm you if you don't join their gang, it's kind of like, I guess, what it would be like to live in prison and have the stresses and dangers of being in a prison environment, but it's just like your neighborhood. So, in that context, it's not completely surprising that some people might get involved in some violence or in some drug dealing or crime or something. So now we have this situation where there's this neighborhood, in fact, thousands of them all over the country, where people are basically put into a war zone. They're two years old or five years old or whatever. They're in this war zone and they start to just adapt. I mean, if you live on Wall Street, you adapt to that. You, you figure out what the, the rules are and how you can fit in. And wherever people are, they adapt. And so then, not surprisingly, there are hotspots of crime and violence, drug dealing, arms trade, et cetera, are a violation of law. It kind of makes sense to do something about that. Meanwhile, as those things are reported in the news, you have the people living in the gated community that I mentioned earlier becoming more fearful, hearing about crime, seeing these riots from time to time that turn violent, and then you have the police, who are, hopefully most of them are good. There's like 700,000 police officers. Let's be a little bit pessimistic, and let's just say there are only 600,000 good police officers and 100,000 bad police officers scattered around the country. Whatever the numbers are, even those 600,000 good police officers, they've been sworn in to do their job to uphold the law. And now you have these neighborhoods that are hot spots. For violations of the law. And the police go in there. And they can't pick and choose who they arrest and who they don't. Or I'm talking the the good cops, you know. So they're just trying to uphold the law. And sometimes they'll let something slide. And they use their discretion. But in general, you know, they got to stop some of this stuff from happening. Some of these acts of violence or crime are perpetrated within a community, by people of the community, against others in the community. It's not some act of outside violence coming in that you can you know, measure and see. And so when we look at that picture, we think, well, okay, wait a minute. The police are doing their job. The court is, seems to be doing their job. I mean, the person was breaking the law. And the prison system is just taking people that have been given to it because those people broke the law and the courts decided what the sentencing was going to be. From a certain angle with a certain set of glasses on at a certain time of day when the sun's just right, you look at it and you think, well, that seems like it's all working properly. And yet it's kind of messed up. And then you take this, whatever number it is, 100,000, 50,000, 10,000, 1,000 bad police officers who maybe joined the force for all the wrong reasons. They wanted power. They like carrying around a gun. They they want to be able to bully people. Maybe they're racist. Maybe growing up they had some bad things happen to them and now they're blaming that on a particular group of people based on whatever identity they have a grudge against. And so you have that group of police that are really making things a lot worse for everybody because now they become this fodder for chaos. Let me go back to the Middle East example. When there's an incident of violence, whether it's perpetrated by the Israelis on the Palestinians or by Palestinians on Israelis, that event becomes, and not in any scheming way, but very real as an example of why somebody should join some extremist militant group or why they should support extremism on the other side. When the United States carries out its war on terror, and as a result of that, sometimes these smart bombs aren't very smart. These drones will drop bombs that fall on schools or hospitals. And sometimes even members of the press or members of the, the United Nations are killed. Well, you've you got to know, we, we certainly understand that those incidents become extremely effective at stirring up more dissension. Two people are interested. The one group that's interested is the terrorist group that's trying to prove that the United States is evil. And they can say, look, it's in the news. Look what just happened. They blew up a hospital or a school. That group is interested in that story. The other group that's interested is some outside government that wants to see strife and turmoil and chaos and suffering in a certain part of the world and unfortunately even the United States has been party to this to some extent when there's been a dictator that we want to overthrow or some regime change that we want to make sometimes the CIA goes in and stirs up a little bit of trouble between two groups so they'll do the fighting for us and it creates an overthrow of a government. And that's usually done in some kind of clandestine way. So anyway, there's almost always going to be two people interested in strife and suffering. Something you'll see that doesn't really align with the common narrative would be some predominantly affluent white neighborhood where you have these maybe not overtly, blatantly racist People, But because of this indoctrination, they become maybe fearful, but they will have some person of color that they really like and really support because that person is a pro golfer or a celebrity or a doctor or a surgeon or something like that. So there are these examples of people who've become successful and that kind of throws into the mix some different variables. You'll have people saying, well, look, so-and-so became a lawyer or a doctor or a pro golfer. Why can't these inner-city kids pull themselves up by the bootstraps and apply themselves in school and go to Harvard then and go on to become a renowned doctor or something? That sounds absurd, but that's sort of the thought process that's somehow going on in people's minds. And there can be this kind of protective shield that people use. If they have a few friends who are people of color, then that they think will kind of give them a pass on this issue of being racist or having some kind of bigotry based on people's race or some other definition of identity. But that's a problem, that you have these anomalies, situations where somebody somehow made it. They grew up down the street from that prep school that was helping inner-city kids get to college, and that creates this belief that, well, you know, if people just apply themselves, they can do anything. Now, it's true. We see extremely driven and successful people from all races, all religions, all colors. A perfect example of this would be people that are competing in the Olympics. It's this regular reminder of success that everyone can achieve if they're given equal access to opportunities and I should say obviously everyone can achieve it if they train six to eight hours a day and have a family that's wealthy enough to support professional sports and if they're born with the talent built in that allows them to succeed and excel beyond most people then you know those those folks can achieve that But let's get back then to this example of the inner city. So you have this situation that in part was influenced, driven, and built by just textbook racism. People that dislike others, even if they've not been indoctrinated, or even if they didn't grow up getting bullied by some members of some gang and develop a a hatred that way. There are some people that are just racist for no reason, and, and we have a history of that in the u.s so that means that certain kids wouldn't play with other kids etc the examples i gave and people going to look for a job would be refused because of their skin color or some other identity and that's partly what's created this situation but now it's sort of a self-perpetuating situation where nobody feels a responsibility to say, hey, wait a minute, this is a messed up situation over here. These people are not being given access to quality education. These people are not being given access to livable wage jobs. These people are not being given access to, a, especially young people growing up, are not being given access to a place to live that feels safe and reliable and dependable and having continuity. In some situations, kids are going from one home to another, staying at the aunt's home, whatever, depending on the circumstances. And so if people would step up and say, okay, that's obviously wrong. We don't know the myriad of reasons how we got here, but this isn't right, this is unjust. And the other thing that young people may not have because of the reasons I mentioned, the institutionalized racism and just this circle of poverty and disparity is the kids won't maybe have good mentors. And so it's like that chessboard I described earlier where the game's half over. You're born into this situation of violence and limited opportunities. And that's just not right. For people who have it as their goal in life to deepen their own racist and bigoted beliefs, they're going to look for evidence that supports their way of living and believing. And so any news story of violence or crime or harm against police, any news story that is of a person of color of any color committing a crime, a person who is Muslim committing some terrorist act, all of those stories will be gathered up by that person on a little three by five cards or something or just indexed away in their mind to continue to build for themselves this argument that there's a basis for their disdain for others who aren't like them. And all of those stories sort of like the, the terrorist group that uses the examples of where a smart bomb did something stupid to enlist more members. Someone who's racist wants to defend and, and promote their racism. And if several people get together and they all have these views, they'll all feed on one another and support one another's beliefs. Some of these influences, then, are not things that we can just snap our fingers and make go away, And as important as demonstrations are and protests and using our right to free speech and standing up when there's an injustice, that's all important. Those end up being important for a specific reason, and that is to bring attention to the problem, but not to solve the problem. And it's hard to understand, to accept, to embrace, to employ solutions that may take a while to unfold. It's hard because we live in a society right now where people are used to getting everything quite quickly with very little effort. It's like if somebody has a health problem and you say, well, I have a cure for that. And then they would respond, well, that's wonderful. I'm all in. Tell me about it. Well, this cure for the health problem involves being very committed and very disciplined and self-sacrificing in having a daily routine of exercise and being very disciplined about what you eat and getting the right amount of sleep, if that's possible. If you're somebody that works two or three jobs, that might not be possible. But you tell somebody, this is the cure for this health problem you have. And if you'll do these things in about a year or two, you'll really notice some great benefits. Well, not many people are going to want that. They're going to want the pill that they can take that's going to somehow cause them to lose weight and have a six-pack ab result. And I think the same thing is true for racism. People want to think that, you know, if we go out and protest this weekend, which people should voice their frustration with the ongoing crisis of racism in America, but there's this thought that there's something that somebody could do and the problem would get solved. There Maybe there's some legislation, some equal rights, some civil liberties. Maybe there's something that could be done, a website you could visit and put your name down on some petition. There's something that could be done that's going to cause a turnaround. So people want a quick and easy solution to whatever their problem is, a financial problem. Use a credit card or take out a loan or get one of those payday loans, a weight problem, obesity problem, liposuction, or getting some surgery done on your stomach or something. Anything to produce a quick, low-cost, low-effort solution is desirable and the same is true for the problems of racism that sort of like a health problem you don't revisit these things every day it's when you go to the doctor and suddenly you realize you have through the roof cholesterol levels or there's some mild heart attack or something now you're going to get serious about health and so we have these riots and everyone's concerned about racism now and You sometimes wonder if any action would be taken at all against these corrupt officers who are behaving illegally and harmfully and harming the image of law enforcement. You sometimes wonder if anything would happen at all if these incidents were not recorded on video. If social media didn't exist, what would happen? People would be getting beaten and killed and nobody would even know about it. Or those who knew would just be A crowd of a dozen bystanders who wouldn't have a video, wouldn't have social media. And if the highways weren't jammed, maybe folks wouldn't be so concerned about these things happening. There's a riot happening somewhere. Doesn't affect me, is what people might say. Uh, But then if, you know, a highway is jammed and you're trying to get to the Starbucks and now you've got some protesters, well, that's starting to create an inconvenience. Maybe we should do something about this problem of brutality and racism. And that's unfortunate. You would think that even if somebody wasn't on their way to Starbucks and getting inconvenienced by some protesters, that they would still want to see something done about injustice. But I think the real problem is that there are not any easy, low-cost, low-effort solutions that can produce lasting, long-term, meaningful results. And so here toward the end of the podcast, as I've kind of laid out that context of what we're dealing with, I want to offer some thoughts. And that would be that we should really try to do something about making sure that people who are just getting started in life, young people in school, there should be some way to provide these special academy schools in inner cities to make education and opportunities something that's available for everyone. I wanna add a point to this idea of a disconnected, disjointed system that when the pieces are put together creates institutionalized functional racism, where we have the police who seem to be doing their job, many of them, and a court system that seems to be working and an incarceration system that's just taking the people that are sent to it. And the other element I forgot to mention is that you have employers who may not wanna hire an ex-convict. They're not being racist, they're just responding to the fact that somebody has a criminal record. And so that's another factor that makes life difficult stemming from the conditions that have created all of this, which is not just a financial disparity, but an access disparity access to education, access to jobs, access to opportunities, access to mentors, access to politicians. When those are all removed, people begin to feel desperate and do desperate things understandably. And if we look at those areas, we can start to think of some ways to turn the system around. And that would be to give people access to education and jobs and mentors and the democratic process. The reason we desperately need more and more examples of successful people of color, people of different ethnic backgrounds, people of different nationalities, people of different identities, being examples of successful business owners, doctors, lawyers, politicians, engaged members of society, is that while that has always been the case, it needs to be more visible. Because it's needed to erode this mindset of those who are harboring bigoted or racist ideas based on those differences. Because we come to the last stronghold, which is the ongoing generational transfer of bigotry and hatred. Whether that hatred and bigotry is based on nationality, religion or color or identity it often gets transferred from one generation to another as young people are indoctrinated into this way of thinking either through isolation and lack of exposure to other groups or for some other reason and it's not always possible to reach out to those people in an impactful way to change their minds and so there just need to be these numerous examples that counteract the few examples that people use to support bigotry. And I think between those two things, really just empowering communities where people currently have limited options, if we can increase the opportunities for people And it can't just be some program that happens one year or some special event or conference or whatever. It has to be like a long-term, ongoing, unceasing, funded by the government and funded by local organizations and funded by businesses. Sort of like we see the efforts made to advance STEM education for all people. We need to see some sort of opportunities being infused in places where there aren't currently those opportunities. And that reality is going to help counter the bigotry that there is no special button we can push to have it go away. Only reality amplified can cause it to go away. I once had a friend ask me about anti-Semitism, and this was at a time when there was a rise. I guess there's always been sort of ongoing examples of anti-Semitism, but there are these incidents that, cause it to be brought back into a discussion again. And my response was that the best way to reduce anti-Semitism is to have more Judaism, to have more people living a positive, impactful life. Because whatever group a person belongs to, whether that be a nationality or ethnicity or religion or other identity group, there will always be a handful of very vocal, active people who don't maybe necessarily represent the views of your group who will go out and do horrendous things and that will make everyone in your group look really bad. And so that happens for different ethnic groups, different religious groups, different professions like law enforcement. You will have these instances. I don't offer that description as a way of discounting or minimizing the need for serious reform and regulations and oversight of law enforcement, but I provide it as part of the context. I want to add an important addendum to the podcast before closing out, and that is that certainly over the past 20 years and probably through my whole life, and it's just because of the way I was brought up, but I have gone out of my way to try to connect with people on a meaningful level from all kinds of different backgrounds. I think part of that is because of influence of Unitarianism in growing up, and that's essentially a philosophy, if I can oversimplify it and summarize it, is to Uh, appreciate and accept everyone and try to value everyone for uh, their own beliefs, and yet the acknowledgement that we all have common overlapping values, regardless of what our religion or nationality or ethnicity or whatever. So that's sort of been distilled in me anyway. But I recall specifically in 2001, I started noticing a lot of kind of negative portrayals of people of Middle Eastern background and particularly Muslims. And it was in the news, this was prior to 9-11, in the news and even in movies. Anyway, I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't becoming influenced by negative portrayals of Muslim people. I didn't really know anybody to counter those portrayals. And so I... I took some initiative and I thought, yeah, I'm going to go as kind of uncomfortable and out of place as it would feel. I'm going to go visit a mosque. And so I did that and tried to get to know some people in the Muslim community. And it was a really great experience because what it does is it starts to counter the sort of artificial and exaggerated stereotypes that we hear in the news And that's the nature of the news. The news is going to report on the sensationalized story about, you know, people of color or people of a certain country or whatever. Or there might be some political-driven purpose of a news story. And so we'll hear about how bad the Russians are or the Chinese or whatever. And so there are all of these external influences that can warp our perception. And so as I in my life would ever sense that I'm sort of distant from a group and being influenced by manipulators, I would try to spend more time with that group. And so I have kind of immersed myself in uh, you know, Islamic communities. I've immersed myself in Orthodox Jewish uh, communities and not out of some ulterior motive and and always with transparency. And it's not as a journalist or some undercover reporter or anything. I just let people know, hey, I don't know anything about your culture and your community. I want to know more. I want to have, you know, accurate portrayals in my mind of different groups. And so, I also spent a period of years when I was going to uh, an African Methodist Episcopalian church, which these are known for their very charismatic and animated services, and predominantly people of color, African Americans, who would be attending these churches. But in any event, what happens is when you, as an individual, take the initiative to go out, and it's good to have, I guess, a couple of friends, but that can deceive yourself into thinking that you're one of the crew or something. Um, But really, if you can, try to immerse yourself in some different Uh, communities and cultures and connect with people of different identities. Um, Another group that I would try to connect with is is people who are in the LGBT community and not just, you know, have coffee once in a while, but try to be a friend to people. And also with people in law enforcement. Um, Any group that's being stigmatized and marginalized and portrayed in a certain way based on the acts of a few Um, And so, Israelis and Palestinians, I went to Israel, I met with Israelis, and I met with Palestinians and Arab uh, people who, you know, had their views about the crisis there. And so, the point is, as we reach out, as we take the initiative, this is something we can do as individuals. And I have known of leadership in churches, for example, that take the initiative to partner with other churches of other ethnic groups or nationalities. You know, if there's a Korean Baptist church, they might get together with the AME church and they might get together with the sort of evangelical, more uh, white church or something. Um, So there are things that leadership can do as well, but it's those things that help ensure that you don't get a slightly warped view of any group. um, And that as that becomes a trend And as that becomes something that people are doing, then that helps to ensure that the next generation of people don't grow up with misconceptions about other groups. So I wanted to mention that because I think that's a very practical thing that we can do as individuals and that we we can promote in our communities. Well, we've reached the end of this episode. I appreciate you taking time to listen I always appreciate those who subscribe to the podcast and comment or share it with others. And I look forward to sharing more with you again soon. Take care.